morning, everyone. Well, that was an uplifting and encouraging song, and I hope I can kind of feed off that and just keep things moving. That was, uh, that was just powerful, uh, and I'm sure Pastor Dwight would have liked the, the end times, the prophecy kind of part of it with the revelation tied in, but it is a blessing to be here, and as you, as you know, I'm not Pastor Dwight. Uh, my, uh, my name is Pat Campbell. My wife, Wendy's there, and she's sitting with an old colleague, a teaching colleague, Tom Heckman, that I taught with for many years, so it's, it's a treat to see him, too. Uh, it's a blessing to be with you the, here this morning. Um, it was kind of interesting. I got several compliments on my, my suit, and uh, I'm not so sure it's the old suit that looks so good. I think it's just the shock of, you know, people seeing me in this, so. But thank you for those compliments. I, I do appreciate that, and Thank you for Rob and the men in the sound booth for getting me getting me up and going. And uh, Dave's the time with Dave and Kent, especially Kent. He kind of let me know the format and made sure I was keeping things on, on the straight and narrow, so to speak. And, but a special thank you to Pastor Dwight for even asking me to do this. Kurt and I just shared quick. Uh, it's a humbling, kind of a trembling combination, being a little nervous, but a trembling you know thing to be in the pulpit. And it is a privilege to, to do that. Um, the, the, the title of the sermon is, uh, the message title is Fear of the Lord versus the Spirit of Fear. And just as a tiny kind of little spoiler alert, when you hear the, the phrase, spirit, the spirit of fear, the spirit of fear, um, it is also equated with the fear of man. And that's where I'm going to go. It may take me a little bit to get there, but I hope you can see how we move down the line and, and we get to that point. It's going to be kind of a traditional delivery. I'm usually a a PowerPoint person, but I opted to go maybe uh, not the way Pastor Dwight does. He does unbelievable uh, presentations. It's just first class. And, but I wanted to go a little more old school, maybe uh, traditional service. And so there's, there's no PowerPoint. Uh, and if you want to follow along in your Bibles, trust that I don't go too fast. You're more than welcome to do that. Uh, or you can just listen to me read them, uh, the various scriptures that we're going to be using. And so before we get going, I just want to have a short prayer, kind of get my thoughts going. Uh, it's just wonderful looking out there and seeing many uh, familiar faces. I mean, I don't want to say old familiar faces because that would not come across, right? But I can see Marion back there, and he fits that category. <clears throat> uh, but really, it is special to, to look out and see people that I've known for literally decades and some folks that I haven't known for, for all that much, but it's, I feel comfortable, I feel familiar, and I just trust the Lord will, will go before us. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Uh, it's a blessing to be here, uh, as I just said, to be with brothers and sisters in the Lord, some of them from many years ago, some from more recent, and, and whatever is said and done, I just want it all to bring you the honor and the glory in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be uh, jumping off from Psalms, as Dave read this morning, Psalm 111.10 and 112.1, because I want to concentrate on something that I've always had an interest in, but never really was able to, to dig into it. Uh, and that is the word fear and how it's used in Scripture, and in particular, to contrast the fear of the Lord with a spirit of fear. So the Bible uses the word fear and phrases that have the word fear in them Many, many times. Uh, I've gone to different places to try to figure out how many, and it's just not possible with all the different translations and things. But I have come up with kind of a safe number that between uh, 350 and 375 times 
the word fear is used in some context. Now, the fear may be a good one, it may be a bad one, but it's, it's used in Scripture. Um, and there are three different ways, three general ways that, that fear is used. Not totally these three, but pretty close. Uh, and the first one comes from knowing that there are consequences, there are consequences for one's actions or knowing that judgment is around the corner. For whatever reason, the judgment is coming. For example, you could turn to Revelation 21.8. And this is, this is just a fearful kind of, man, I am afraid of what is going to happen. And in, in particular here, I'm afraid of what God is going to do to me. This is Revelation 21.8. Because it has to do with an unbeliever. Revelation 21.8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the example of fear shown in Revelation 21.8 is the kind of fear that an unbeliever has when it's quiet and it's dark, and they're not out there you know, thinking they're something that they're not, but they realize that judgment is coming. And in the book of Revelation, is absolutely full of that. And the part that is so amazing, they know the consequences are coming, and they know judgment is coming, but they still don't turn to the Lord. Uh, it just boggles our minds. So that's one kind of fear that you, you read in the Bible. Now, there's another similar, but it, it's different, because the context is almost always different. 2 Timothy 1.7. Very powerful reminder. Second Timothy one seven. Sorry if I if I don't think to give you enough time to flip around, but sometimes I get rolling and lose track of that. Second Timothy one seven. It says, For God has not given us a spirit, that's a small s of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Paul is writing to Timothy. This is the and, and if, you were, if you're sitting, on, uh, sitting in on Pastor Dwight's Wednesday evening services, you know, you know this and you know even more detail than I'm going to give. But Paul is writing this to Timothy as his very last canonized epistle before he is martyred. Paul is writing to Timothy, last letter. He's writing it to his protege. Uh, Paul knows that death is right around the corner. And, and it's kind of like, i got to say this to, to young Timothy. The Greek word for fear here in this verse denotes a cowardly, shameful fear, according to John MacArthur's commentary on this verse. Now, much could be said about what Paul was writing to Timothy about in the letter, but suffice it to say that Paul has concerns about his protege, Timothy. He's worried. Just kind of like a dad worries about you know, his son out and about, or a grandpa worries about the grandkids. There's, there's genuine concern that the world is going to kind of engulf him, even a good, good man like Timothy. Very possibly, Paul was concerned that Timothy was showing a fear of the consequence of standing firm in the ministry that Paul had taught him. Paul was worried about that. Paul had concerns that the pressure of Rome that was coming down on the church, that early church, pressure from some of the leaders in the church where Timothy was pastor, that very well could have been a part of it. Pressure from false teachers was very possibly having a negative effect on Timothy's ministry, and Paul was worried. Paul is simply saying, 
Be strong, Timothy. Don't be a coward when facing these satanic attacks. Now, as a side note, I hope this doesn't distract from the, from the word, but as a side note, if you're a longtime Nebraska football fan, and I'm really not a longtime Nebraska football fan at all, what I was in my early coaching days, I was a Tom Osborne fan. I, I, I respected the guy. I appreciated his Christian stand. But if you are a longtime Nebraska football fan, you may know that this verse was one of Tom, Coach Tom Osborne's favorite. Coach Osborne would co- often quote that verse at conferences, coaching seminars, seminars, and even at halftime talks to his teams. And I always thought that was so great. I would attend as many of these conferences as I could as a young football coach, and, and I grew to appreciate his stand, Coach Osborne, his stand for the Lord. Dictionary-wise, the fear used here in 2 Timothy 1.7 is the Greek word deolia. means cowardice, timidity, or, timidity, or simply a fearfulness of, of something. And that's according to Spiros, the complete word study of the New Testament. Deolia is consistently used in a negative manner. Revelation 21.8, referred to earlier, uses the adjective form of that word. So they're, they're, they're negative words. But it's the same idea. It's a fear that one has when they are showing cowardice, a timidity, or they are simply being afraid of someone or something in a given situation. Now, having said that, Here's, here's the, the fear that we want to look at today and that I really want to concentrate on, and I just hope that we can, you know, have it sink into our hearts. And this is the Greek word phobos. It means a reverential fear or a reverential awe of God. Not a mere fear of his power, you know, like, he can squish me like a bug. No, no, not, not that kind of fear. It's an awe uh, because of who he is. And what he's done for us and what we should be doing for him as a result of what he's done for us as believers. So it's not a mere fear of his power and righteous retribution, but it's a wholesome dread of displeasing him. That's according to Vine's uh, complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words. And that is the definition of, for fear of the Lord that is used in our time together this morning. This is the type of positive productive fear of reverential awe. And it's the same definition, it's the same word that Luke uses when he talks about the early church. And we can be just like the early church. We can have that same reverential awe. This is Acts 9.31. This is, this is Luke writing. And this is what we read in 9.31. And of course the the context is, um, but, you know, think about the fear of the Lord and think about those people and the awe they had in the early church. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and they were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord, they were walking in the reverential awe of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. This type of fear is, is pleasing to God. And as we walk through life, that's what we want to do. We want to please God, and we want to have this fear. So, fear of the Lord is a positive. It's demonstrating a reverential awe that Christians should have in God. 
Whereas the spirit of fear is a negative fearfulness that results in cowardice and timidity in a given situation. And so it's a powerful, powerful contrast that we'll get to here in a little bit. But I wanted to read this short anecdote, mostly because it made me smile. And uh, I don't know if it'll totally make you smile like uh, the way it did me. But here's a short anecdote that I trust is helpful that speaks to being on the same page, not confusing Words, not confusing fear of the Lord and spirit of fear. Because you can read your scripture and you can read fear here and read fear here. And if you're not cognizant of the, the context or you're not into the Greek, you can get, you, you got to be careful because you might be confusing what fear you're talking about. And so here's, here's the anecdote. The I here is a guy, a guy named John uh, Bevere. His name, his, his name is John Bevere. Uh, He's written many Christian books. But this is what he says, and this is what made me chuckle a little bit. But it was helpful. I I thought it was helpful. This is John Bevere. He says, In the summer of 1994, I was asked to minister for a church conference in the southeastern United States. At the time, I was on a journey to discover holy fear. I strongly sensed the need to lay aside this apprehension and and ministered. I preached on the fear of the Lord in in this first evening session at the conference. The next evening after worship, the head pastor took the platform. So this is the next day after this John Bevere preached. The next evening after worship, the head pastor took the platform for what I assumed would be a routine introduction. But this wasn't the case. For 15 minutes, he corrected what I had spoken about the previous evening. He confidently stated the fear of the Lord only applies to the Old Testament times. But as Christians, we are not given a spirit of fear. And he referenced 2 Timothy 1.7. So what, so, and this is the pastor talking about John Vivere. He said, so what John Vivere taught last evening is error. And I want to protect you from it. His elaborate correction of my message continued for several more minutes. Once he finished, to my surprise, he introduced me to come to the platform to minister. I still remember walking up and thinking to myself, how can I minister to these people after what he just did? This cannot be happening to me. You know, I can relate to that. Oh, my goodness. The quote concludes with, I realized that next morning the pastor had confused the spirit of fear with the fear of the Lord. End of quote. And then I just, I wrote, I think if I got an introduction like that from Pastor Dwight, I would have quietly exited the side door, and I don't think I would have came up. I just try to put myself in that position. It's just so interesting. But, but the point is, we've got to make sure we have our terms straight. We've got to have, you know, things correct, uh, definitions, the context, and so on. Now, also, as we move back and forth from Old Testament to New Testament, the Old Testament Hebrew word for fear has a very, very similar meaning to the New Testament Greek that speaks to a reverential awe. So if you're thinking, Old, Old Testament uh, use of fear, New Testament use of fear, different. No, very, very similar. For example... Uh, Dave read in Psalm 111.10, that was part of the scripture, that was part of the scripture reading this morning. He read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. My, my King James that I, that I, I just have always used. I just I like the ESV and the New King James, but when you remember places in your Bible where the verse is, it's like, it's so difficult to give it up because I can open, I can picture it's there, I can find it. 
And so I, I just really appreciate this. And this is the second Thomas Nelson King James that I've gone through. But a footnote in this, my King James Study Bible, says this about the term fear of the Lord. It describes it as an awe-filled reference towards the Lord. So we're on the same page. New Testament, Old Testament, fear, it's, uh, it's, it's very, very similar. Now, here's an interesting and unique use of reverential awe type fear that's found in Revelation 14, 6 through 7. This is the kind of thing that a pastor gets to share. He finds interesting, so, you know, he shares it, and he hopes like crazy uh, the congregation finds it interesting. Because I, I used to teach Revelation uh, down in Peru, and we would talk about this, and our students would go, whoa, you know, this was really interesting, and, and let, me, let me share it. This is from 11, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. So this is John, the author of the Revelation, writing about an event that takes place towards the end of the seven-year tribulation. So here it is, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, and here's where you know the point is, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. You know, and, and that's always been a powerful thing to me. And I remember going to uh, MacArthur's commentary early on, and I'm going to share some of that with you. And this is what MacArthur says as he gives commentary on what I just read, uh, really on a little bit more than that, more on uh, most of Revelation 14. But this is what MacArthur says. The angel's message to sinners is fear God, have reverential awe for God, and give him glory. The angel is the he he will call the people of the world to change their... This angel is going to call the people at the end of time, at the end of time as we know it, at the end of the tribulation, to change their allegiance from the beast, the Antichrist, to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He will urge them to no longer fear, reverence, and worship Satan and the Antichrist, but instead to fear, reverence, and honor God by turning to His Son. As the sovereign ruler of the universe, God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has the right to be worshipped. And that's the end of quote from MacArthur's New Testament commentary on, on, Matthew, uh, on Revelation 14. I've always found that passage very interesting in that it's the only time in Scripture uh, an angel is said to be spreading the gospel message. And as time as we know it, as time as we know it, is winding down for the people of the tribulation, God is, so to speak, pulling out all the stoppers to get the salvation message out, even using, even using angels. And for any people groups that I just read about that were, so to speak, I use this term loosely, that may have been missed by missionaries or, uh, or the 144,000 or the two witnesses and many others during the tribulation time, these unbelievers will have heard the word one last time from this angel as he preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. God cares. God loves us. Even at the end of the tribulation where these people have hearts that are so hard, so rotten, he doesn't give up on them. And he doesn't give up on us. 
The Bible repeatedly calls people to fear God, to fear the Lord. And here are several verses that encourage us, admonish us to show God the reverential awe he deserves. So these are just kind of giving examples. So I'm going to kind of go and and trying to keep up with them maybe a little bit hard. But they all make the same point. But the idea is that there's so many verses that remind us that we are to fear the Lord. We are to have God-honoring fear of God. As we read in Psalm 111.10, the psalmist declared that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. While Proverbs 23.17 commands, live in the fear of the Lord always. We are to live with uppermost in our minds this reverential awe of God. And that in Proverbs 24, 21, a wise father counsels his son to fear the Lord and the king. While Peter exhorted his readers to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Then to Matthew 20, uh, 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus warned, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. To fear God is to live in the reality of his holiness, his sovereignty, and his judgment of sin. It is to love God, respect him, reverence him, adore him, hold him in awe, and worship him. And that can only be done by loving his son and knowing his son as a personal savior. Here's another description, not so much a definition as as a description, but here's another description of the fear of the Lord. The continual awareness that our loving loving Heavenly Father is watching and evaluating everything we think, say, and do. Whoa. (laughs) If that doesn't get your attention as a believer, I don't think anything will. That description should certainly inspire a reverential awe in our God. In the darkest of corners, when we're by ourselves, we're out and alone. You think you can get away with that thought? No. God is there. He's continually aware of what we do, what we think, and what we say. That description to me is, is just very humbling. It's much like what Christ says to the seven churches in Revelation. He tells them all that, I know many of you will just could say this, but he says, I know your works. He says it to every single one of the seven churches. He tells them all that, I know your works. Then they go on, he goes on to say other things, of course. Imagine being the congregation at the church of Sardis. It's one of the seven churches, of course. It's one of the seven churches of Revelation, and the pastor was given this letter by the Apostle John to read to the congregation. And that is very well, and I could stand up here and feel comfortable saying, That is what happened back in the first century, that the pastor was given the message and he read it to the congregation because Revelation 111 makes this clear. It says, John is told, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, John. Send it to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And so I truly believe that this would have been read uh, to the church in Sardis at one of their services. So, 
Pretend you're the congregation at Sardis. And here's the pastor reading this message from the Apostle John that he'd received from Christ. This is Revelation 3, 1 and 2. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. He says, I know your works. Listen to this as a congregation. You have the reputation, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How'd you like Pastor Dwight to come up here and say, say that kind of thing to you? It'd be just like, oh my goodness. It, it, would, it would be overwhelming. He goes on to say, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. What a sad commentary on that church in Sardis. And I'm afraid that many churches today, they think they're alive, they got tons of programs, they got tons of community involvement, they got the biggest signs out front, and so on, but they're, they're dead. God says they're dead in terms of the preaching and the teaching of the true word of God. And that leads us into thinking about, let's think about having the fear of man, which is, you know, the spirit of fear, they're, they're, they're synonymous, instead of having the fear of God. Just see if we can draw that contrast. The old teacher comes back at me, I wasn't a math teacher, I was a science person, but first of all, I believe that these two, fear of man and fear of God, are using a math term inversely proportional. That is, as you grow in the fear of the Lord, you automatically decrease in your fear of man. It's like you don't even care about what people say in terms of you know your walk with the Lord and, and those kinds of spiritual things. And as you grow in the fear of man, whatever exactly that means for your life, you will decrease in your fear of the Lord. So with that in mind, how does the fear of man play itself out in our lives and how can we prevent it? I think maybe that's the powerful part of it. And that's where as a teacher, I'm not so good at the application part. I, I always felt pretty good about getting the facts and getting this out. But it's the application that a pastor makes that is, is extremely powerful because that's what helps you. That's what helps us. So how, but how does the fear of, the, of man play itself out in our lives and can we prevent it? And the, the verse that I'm going to kind of... Uh, stick around uh, is Proverbs 29.25. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So you have that option. Jeremiah Jeremiah 5.26 says it this way, For among my people are, this is Jeremiah talking about the nation of Israel. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap and they intentionally try to catch people. Which another way of might be saying, they intentionally try to get people to go to hell. And not to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to see Jehovah God in in, uh, Jeremiah's reference. Okay, and wow. Five verses later, this is what Jeremiah says. And does this not sound like today's news that you could go CNN? You could go to CNN and you know and, and listen to it. But listen to this. 
This is Jeremiah talking back hundreds of years ago. He was a contemporary of Daniel. And wow, does this not sound like today's news? The prophets prophesize falsely. The priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. And the people like to hear it. But what will you do in the end? If that's not for today, then I don't know what is. It's a tiny rabbit trail, but it points out that Jeremiah was coming down hard on the wandering, disobedient Jewish nation that had more fear of man than they had fear of God. The nation of Israel spent more time fearing man throughout their history than they feared God. The fear of man, it can be physical, but in the comfy setting of the United States and and most Western countries, it's still primarily kind of a head thing. You know, it's a mind thing. It's a psychological issue. It's not really, we're not really afraid of of being killed or hurt or tortured. I I don't think that's ever come across to us. I always remember uh, we'd get to this and I'd talk to the students and I'd ask them, could you give me examples of, in Peru, could you give me examples of a persecution that you suffer in Peru? And, And for most of our students, the worst they got was they couldn't get a job in town or their mom and dad lost the job. You know, they, they didn't get beat. And they admitted, they, they saw that as comfy. Now, you and I have a, a different level of comfy, but it's the, it's the same kind of idea, but it's relative. So, it's, so when we think of the fear of man, it can be physical. But in our setting in the United States, it's primarily a, a head thing. It's a psychological issue. So, look, first look at what Jesus told the disciples in Luke 12, 4 through 5. So, in Luke 12, 4 through 5, because this prepares us, this is meant to help us to get out there in the world and, and not succumb, not, not shrink because of what everybody says to us. So, it says... Look at what Jesus told his disciples in 12, 4 through 5. Now, the backdrop of the context is he was preparing them for what lies ahead for them. And what lies ahead for them? Persecution, suffering. They haven't really got it going yet, but they're going to be under some intense persecution. Luke 12, 4 through 5, Jesus says, And I say to you, my friends, he's talking to his disciples, do not be afraid of those who killed the body, and after that have no more than they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Kind of reminds me of what, you know, Vince was, we were reading about this morning. Jesus is an awesome, patient teacher. But he's not afraid to remind us of the judgment that's coming. And he's not afraid to call He's just not afraid to say it like it is. But I'm afraid some people, all they do when they think of Jesus is they think of the love and and he loves us and he wouldn't do this or to us. No, there's so many times in scripture where he warns us and he gives us judgment. And he says here, fear him. And he's talking about Jesus. Fear him after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him with a capital H. The disciples would be beaten, stoned, flogged, and imprisoned. Much like Paul. 
And let's, let's just read a little bit about Paul. This is coming from 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. And we could read some of the same things about the apostles. Uh, specifically, where this, this was referring to the disciples. And you know the apostles and disciples overlap, but Jesus had a lot of disciples that were not apostles, so not to confuse the issue. But we're going to read about Paul being persecuted in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 27. Okay, this is what Paul went through. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. It was illegal to, to, to whip them 40 times, so they could only go 39. But he, that happened five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I had been in the deep. He was in the ocean or, or uh, the Aegean Sea someplace. He was in the deep. In perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brothers. He couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't get out of town and get safe. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings, often in cold and nakedness. That's the end of the verse. I know I haven't gone through any of that. I can't even not, I can't even relate to that. Which is it? Jesus' point is simple. A common theme in the Bible is if you stand for the cause of Christ, there's going to be persecution. And I've thought about that verse in 2 Peter so many times about as believers, we're going to be persecuted. And I said, Lord, I'm a believer. Why have, not, why have I not been persecuted? And then I thought about it. And, and you read more. Persecution doesn't always come you know, by, by getting beat up or tortured. No, persecution can happen in other ways. And I could give you some examples, but that's getting off the point. And maybe some of you can reflect on persecutions that you've gone through. John fifteen twenty says, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What form the persecution takes, you know, that's, that's a God thing. I, I, I just don't know. Many of the disciples would be killed. We believe, uh, we don't have biblical evidence of this, but all of them except for John uh, died. All of the, the, the apostles, that is, would have died some kind of persecution death. Uh, John apparently died of old age. Yet he warned them not to let the fear of man stop them from proclaiming the gospel. So this is Jesus. He, he says these things. We have it in the book. We have it in the, the gospel of John. He warned them not to let the fear of man stop them from proclaiming the gospel. Even though his followers would undergo tremendous physical suffering for his sake, the trials would be brief and they would be temporary. And that's got to be our mindset even though I know it's not easy and I haven't lived it all the time, but that should be our mindset. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing us. Here we are as believers. This light momentary affliction, whatever you're going through, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. End of verse. The moment they left the earth, they would forever reap rewards for their faithfulness. Wicked men could hurt them no longer. 
And that's what Jesus was trying to teach these frontline missionaries, if you will, the apostles and the disciples. Back to Revelation 3, 5. If you, if you want to turn there, um, no need to, but if you want to turn to Revelation 3, 5, this is a continuation of, of the church at Sardis. And I don't want to leave the opinion that, that Sardis was all bad. But there was some good there. But this is a continuation. And this, these are, if you have a red letter edition, uh, this, these are Jesus' words being said to the church at Sardis. He who overcomes, and the overcomers were believers, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, and, and now, thinking back to Luke 12, 4 through 5, where we started this section, Jesus was teaching them to not have the fear of man for an eternity in heaven awaits the believer. And that's the same thing that's being taught in the book of Revelation. But, as mentioned a little bit earlier, a threat more prevalent to most Christians, especially those in the Western countries and the free nations, is kind of a psychological fear of man. Not a fear of being persecuted or tortured. This fear is an anxious need to receive affirmation from those around us. The fear of man manifests as people-pleasing, the boss-pleasing, job-saving syndrome. Maybe the kind of thing that Burke talked about, or he asked for a prayer request. can't remember, it was a few weeks ago, I think on a Wednesday. But I think it was that kind of thing. And if you're not, I'll feel better. Okay. Uh, It's the kind of thing that Burke had asked prayer for a short while back. The pressure that is increasing in the workplace where values may be compromised, peer pressure may lead to a choice not to share our faith. The fear of man can be a snare when we allow it to influence our decisions rather than obey God. You know, and I can think back, I retired from my secular teaching job in uh, uh, 2008, 2009. And, and I can think back to some of those things. You know, I got called into the principal's office because, you know, something to do with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes that he didn't really like. And, and so, you know, I kind of got a scolding about some things. And, and that, and I felt, to be honest, I kind of felt good about it. I said, well, at least it's got his attention and we're doing something right for the Lord. And so it was, it was really, it was not a big deal. I was, I was worried about some issues with the club and so on. But... Listen, listen to what Jesus says in John ten twenty seven. This is what's uplifting. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We as humans, and I'm, I'm more guilty than anyone out there, I know it. We often opt to avoid unpleasant interactions. You know, we turn and we go the other way, or we, we, we just don't move in the direction that we should. For some, it may be easier to heed the fear of man than to invite the possibility of consequences. Consider the bold words of Peter when he and other apostles were ordered to stop preaching about this Jesus. And you all know what Peter said. We must obey God rather than man, and that's from Acts 5.29. The first disciples did not allow the fear of man to keep them from doing what God had called them to do. And of course, the question in the back of all our minds is, are we? 
Here's just a short little, another little anecdote to draw attention to God's word. And, and it has to do with Acts 5.29. That, once again, it's the kind of thing that makes me smile. I hope, hope you appreciate it. But Wendy and I uh, were visiting a church and we were going to give a Peru presentation like we had done many, many times. And we were in the Sunday school class, you know, informal sitting at tables, kind of close-knit, not, not in an auditorium like this, but kind of in a close setting. We were in a Sunday school, and the discussion was about doing illegal things against the law, like sneaking in Bibles. And in this case, the discussion was sneaking missionaries or sneaking Bibles into China. They were breaking the law. The discussion centered, and, and then there was discussion from the folks. Just very good discussion. The discussion centered, not all of it right, but good discussion. The discussion centered on obeying laws. When in Rome, you know, things were said like this. You know, when in Rome, you do as the Romans do, and when in China, you do as the Chinese do, was the kind of the, you know, the direction. Don't hurt your testimony. And there were others, and there were other comments. But then, but then the Sunday school teacher says, hey, let's ask our visiting missionaries. And I go, oh, geez. You know, I went from about a 75, 80 to about 125. It just started, I knew it was coming, but I, it was there. So, so he says, Pat, what do you think? And it was one of those, oh, Lord, moments. It was just, you know, you only have a split second. And if you got it, you got it. If you don't, you don't. You know, you got to say something. You can't. You can't say no. Um, if I don't forget to, I'll share this other example about you can't say no kind of thing in just a second if I don't forget. But this is an important one. It was one of those Lord moments, but the verse just mentioned a little earlier came to my mind. So the Sunday school teacher says, Pat, what do you think? And the only thing I could say, I didn't you know, preface it. I didn't say anything. I just said, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. And that's all I said. And it was like, when he heard that verse, because he was a good man, you know, he, he was no dummy. Hearing that, that verse pretty much ended the discussion and they moved on. God's word will do that. God's word will just, boom, shut them up, you know, and, and just put them in their place, so to speak. We must obey God rather than man. I'm going to share this because it's on my mind and uh, uh, real quick. I was put in a situation one time, we had, We'd gone to Cambodia, Wendy and I, and it was um, just an awesome experience, one of those things, seeing believers in another country and how they loved the Lord but what they were up against and so on. But we were invited to be with some missionaries that were working with uh, the, uh, a college group. Uh, there was a, in Phnom Penh, the capital, there was you know, a big university and people going to school. And these missionaries were working with them, and, and they had been telling us all about this. And it was just absolutely fascinating to listen to them. But as oftentimes happens, <laughs> I say this, they think missionaries have answers. They think you should know something. <laughs> and, you know, you don't know any more than, than anybody else. Uh, and so the missionary was telling us, and he says, and he says to me, he didn't even know me, he didn't know my name, he, but he looked at me and he says, well, how do we reach all those people? And there were millions of them. He was talking about Phnom Penh, millions of them, the university. And it was like, it was one of those, those moments where I, I, I can't even tell you how I felt. 
But I'm just so thankful. I must have, uh, I don't even know if I had time to lift up a prayer or the Lord just laid something on my heart. But all I could say is this. And if I'm not careful, this is where I start <coughs> getting a little teary-eyed. Because all I said was, just one heart at a time. You know, they were thinking of programs. They were thinking of, you know, how can we reach all these people? How much money do we need? No, that's not the way you do it. At least according to my Bible. It's one heart at a time. And then since the fear of man and the fear of God are inversely proportional, as I said earlier, when one goes up, the other goes down. And since the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom... The fear of man will call our, cause our foolishness number to go up. And we dearly want to keep that number as low as humanly possible. And so I, I can't exactly quantify it, but the fear of man is supplanting biblical convictions in many Christian circles nowadays. I bet you some of you could give me examples of that. We all have varying circumstances that are part of our lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, whatever. But the secular pressure is on, and it's only going to get worse. Call it woke, call it a joke, it's real, and it's growing, and it's coming more and more. Many of us are facing these issues individually, and churches are beginning to face them corporately. How a given local body of believers meets this challenge is beginning to play itself out, and I believe the persecution of these churches is coming. It is moving from subtle to in-your-face. And if you don't think it is, then I think you're missing the boat. It's just like when you get up in the morning, if you don't say, I'm in a spiritual battle, you've already lost it. Now, I'm talking to myself. If you don't get up prepared for the day, knowing you're going to have a spiritual battle, then you're starting from behind. And, and as just mentioned, the fear of man has replaced biblical conviction in, in some so-called Christian circles today. Public opinion has overridden the clear teaching of Scripture on so many social issues. Entire denominations are caving to the fear of man and have become, it's become a snare to them. It may be seemingly innocuous, you know, as women pastors, homosexual marriages within the church, and many other things. The desire to be viewed by the world as progressive, enlightened, or tolerant, or politically correct is a snare that Satan has used to reel people into his way of thinking. The need to be liked and accepted has become more important than the Word of God to many. And once again, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to myself. Even professing believers, thus proving the truth of Proverbs 29-25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. If we trust in the Lord, we're going to be safe. Romans 8.31 points us away from the snare. It points us away from the fear of man. If God can be for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. If you believe that, you can live life in a God-honoring, fearful, reverential all way. As Christians, we should be sensitive to current social issues and be compassionate, yes, and kind to all. But we should never allow the fear of man to determine our course. The Bible has many examples of Christian martyrs. You can go to good books like the Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's an incredible book. But most of these martyrs could have avoided death 
had they only remained silent about their loyalty to Christ or by recanting their faith. I, I read that and I always say, I wonder how many times I did that. If they had, if they had allowed the fear of man to silence them, they have, may, they may have won the world's applause for a moment, but lost their heavenly rewards. While Satan cannot steal the salvation of those born again into God's kingdom, he can, and he does use snares to steal our victories. He steals our witness opportunities, our opportunities to store up treasures in heaven by magnifying the fear of man in our hearts and in our minds. And so to wrap things up this morning, I wanted to share some examples of fearing of the Lord that's found in in the Bible. So maybe this can be an encouragement to you, different people in the Bible. Abraham. At the end of Abraham's greatest test, and we know that, after he showed his willingness to give up, kill his promised son, believing that God would somehow resurrect Isaac, God told Abraham, just before he was going to knife his kid, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. Guess what he says to him? He says, for now I know you, Abraham, fear God. He says, I now know you've proven to me that you have a reverential awe of me since you would have not have withheld your son, your only son from me. Powerful stuff. Moses. Moses followed Jethro's, his father-in-law's advice to appoint God-fearing men to help serve as judges over Israel. This is from Exodus 18.21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetedness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. These judges would remember their responsibility before God to not take bribes or allow other forms of corruption to creep in. Unfortunately, I don't know, I'm sure how many generations down the line, you know, that, that kind of faded out, but Moses did what Jethro wanted him to do, pick the God-fearing men. Also, Moses recorded instructions for future kings of Israel, to write out a copy of the biblical laws. So Moses told the future kings, write out a copy of the biblical laws that include a reminder to fear the Lord. From Deuteronomy 17, 19, 20. It's very important that we live our lives with a reverential awe of God. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. How did they learn to fear the Lord by reading scripture. That's what Moses would have them do. And be, uh, and be careful to observe all the words of the laws and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not think he's better than somebody else, a little paraphrase thrown in there, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in this kingdom and his children in the midst of Israel. Hezekiah. You can count on one finger how many good kings there were. Maybe a little bit. And Hezekiah was one of them. Hezekiah is mentioned as one king that did fear the Lord. Most of them did not. Jeremiah 26, 19. The context is a little tricky, but the point is the fearing of God. 
Did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, put him to death? It's a rhetorical question. No, he didn't. Did he not fear the Lord? Rhetorical question. Yes, he did fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord. And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? Yes, because of Hezekiah, he did. But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves through our disobedience. The point was, Hezekiah feared the Lord. He was one of the few good kings that did good stuff. From, and he was able to do those God-honoring things because he, he feared the Lord. And here's one more. God also mentioned that those who fear him are being written into his book of remembrance. You can read from Malachi 3.16, and, and it's probably good to have the whole context, but this is an encouraging word by Malachi Malachi is writing to the faithful remnant, and there was not very many. The remnant was tiny, but he's writing to them. He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They were together, these these individuals that feared the Lord, that feared Jehovah God, Yahweh, and they're talking to one one another. And the Lord listened, and he heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him, for those that fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. That says God knew the people that feared the Lord and wrote their names in a book. Malachi had noted how God had not forgotten those that feared the Lord and esteemed his name. This book of remembrance is very likely a reference to the book of life in which the names of God's children are recorded. I'd have to do a little more study. It'd be definitive, but it it sure, as I looked at that in Daniel and into Revelation, it sure seems it's the same book. This book of remembrance is very likely a reference to the book of life in which the names of God's children are recorded. The same book mentioned in Daniel 12.1. You read in Daniel 12.1, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found in the book. So you can read it in Daniel, you can read it in Malachi, you can read it in in Revelation. If our names are written in the book, we will fear the Lord. And if we truly fear the Lord, our names are going to be written in the book. Well, there's a general overall lack of fearing God today in this world. It's so prevalent. It's very well a component of those signs pointing to a soon coming of the rapture. And to quote someone that is near and dear to all of us, let's live ready, but also let's add, let's do it by demonstrating our fear of the Lord. Thank you.